0: This talk was originally a live conversation, which took place in Belgrade in June 2022.
1: With 10 people, anything works. You basically don't need a meeting. You don't need a calendar. You don't need anything. You're just in a room and you're working, you know, building cool stuff. With 20, 30 people, this breaks entirely. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show a podcast about startup
0: stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Hello, everyone. My name is Sylvan. It's my pleasure to be your host tonight. And today's session is hosted by SmallPDF. The company started in 2013 to make PDFs smaller so you can actually email them. And then... Developed around that to build a full PDF powerhouse with different services, such like uh, e-signature, for example, and the Swiss-based company grew rapidly. is completely bootstrapped and also employs more than thirty-five people here in Belgrade. And it is my pleasure to invite Small PDFs CEO Dennis Just on stage. Welcome, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> We of course also have a second guest who will join us in a minute. But before we do so, Dennis, a quick question for you. What actually brings you to Belgrade?
2: So um, first of all, welcome everybody, I think, to, to the session. It's great to see so many like-minded people. I cannot see a lot because <laughs> the light is hitting my face. Um, but at least the, the silhouettes are there um, for the topic and I think we really, um, you know, as small PDF as well, I want to give something back to the community. So, to your question, um, my Belgrade story I think started about eight years ago when my former company Knip uh, was in the need of developer capacity, uh, which I think uh, a lot of you I think seem to be in a familiar familiar space. Um, and we actually decided. Uh, to be the ho- first customer of Holy Code, which you might know, uh, one of the bigger Nilshawn companies here, um, and uh, I think had a really great experience with the talent that we got. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, after closing the, the chapter, not all entrepreneur cases are successful uh, for, for someone personally. Um, I think made the personal statement and decision that we don't want to have any showing or outsourcing kind of setup anymore, but we want people to actually own the shit, the product, be accountable for it, but on the other hand, have the freedom to decide whatever they want to build. Um, so this, in, in a nutshell, is my story. Uh, I learned a lot of things about Belgrade. I think my, my passport is full of uh, Serbian stamps at the moment, <laughs> uh, like 50 or 60. Uh, I learned that ketchup belongs on a pizza, uh, which was nice um, uh, to, to figure that out. Uh, one of my most favorite locations, I think, was the Berliner, which was shut down with Belgrade waterfront. So I think everybody um, is a bit uh, in, in shame of losing the nice area um, on the river, uh, which was a, a nice party area. But no, we started with that and then uh, with small PDF actually decided to make a move um, and a real move to, to Belgrade to decide we want to open not only a chapter or near new showing location, but a company here um, that in the end backs and owns part of our small PDF products, and this is where we are today.
0: Great. And you're not alone here today. You're joined by co founder Matthias Büti, the small PDF co founder. But he not only uh, co founded small PDF, but actually also TaxFix. TaxFix lets you file quick and paperless taxes from all over the world. They raised a total of 330 million venture capital in US dollars, employ more than 500 people, and are also a unicorn. Muttis, co-founder of Small PDF and TaxFix, a very well welcome. <clears throat> Muttis, we heard you co-founded two very successful companies, but you don't have any operational role anymore at either of them. So, are you already done with your entrepreneurial career?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so also, first of all, thanks a lot for having us, it's really cool to be here, uh, very cool location, I was extremely impressed and uh, yeah, like to be here with Dennis together. Um, visiting the team is actually my first time in Belgrade, because of Corona I was never able to, to come here and um, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure, just walking through the city today uh, was fantastic. But to your question. Um, so yes, I have started quite a few um, companies before and uh, it's something I'm really, really passionate about, starting something from the ground up and, and, uh, and finding real big problems to solve in this world, even though they might be really boring, like uh, PDFs or uh, taxes, even worse. <laughs> but uh, that you know, like, are actually really interesting businesses and you can help a lot of people, touch a lot of people's lives by solving those challenges fundamentally. And um, yeah, that's something like I I probably will be continuing doing at some point, but I think it's, you know, just due to people like Dennis that uh, we can work together in in many different ways. And for me, my entrepreneurial journey was like, you know, very exciting at small PDF in the beginning. And then we found Dennis to take over and did just an amazing job to scale that to found actually the Belgrade location, for example, and all of that. And like being part of that journey, but in a different role now in this chairman working closely with Dennis, but like um, having Dennis in the lead here is, is really great. Um, and that allows it basically to, to then start a different company as I did with TaxFix then in Berlin a few years after a Small PDF.
0: Yeah, there will be plenty of things that we will talk about, scalable business built to last. We will take the bootstrap perspective, but of course also the VC backed perspective. Before we do so, a bit more context. I'm actually here because I had the pleasure of having both of you on the Swisspreneur podcast. Switzerland's largest business podcast and Small PDF is also one of our key partners, the main partner at the moment. So it's my pleasure to also be here and moderate this session with you today. We also have an interactive Q and A session, so we'll bring up the QR code in a second here on the screen. If you do have any questions that you'd like to ask our guests, scan the QR code, go to menti.com and enter the code. If you don't have a QR code scanner, and answer, like submit your questions there, that we can answer them at the end for the Q and A session.
2: The tougher the questions, the more fun we have. (laughs) Perfect.
0: And also, you know, scaling is quite a broad topic to talk about. What we'll really focus on today is, how do you scale from zero to 50 employees to really get that initial scaling up right? And we want to share some stories and best practices around that. And as I mentioned, the Bootstrap versus the VC case, that's going to lead to some interesting discussions. Are you ready, guys? Yes. Let's go. So the first question I have prepared for you, uh, maybe for you, Matisse, to start with, when are you actually ready to scale as a company? Because sometimes the timing can be quite difficult
1: to understand when you're in the middle of building a company. Right. Yeah, so I mean, I think there needs to be, uh, how I see it, is there needs to be product market fit, right? Like there's, it's a big word that a lot of people use and especially VCs and, and a lot of like startup media, but what does that really mean? And I think, for me, that means that you found a problem that is big enough, that you solve already well enough, that people actually you know, see the value in, in your solution. And that's, again, quite abstract. But like, scaling also only makes sense if you have the room to scale. right? Is there a big enough market? Can you take that one problem and like find different problems around it and, um, or, or just get a larger audience? right? Can you scale marketing? Can you scale that? So the factors for scaling, I think, need to be there. Um, and we realize that a lot, like when you know, often you think you are ready with the product, but then you just don't see the angle in distribution or something like that. Yeah. So I think like some kind of product market fit needs to be there, and while well, you need to have either the money or the profitability to do it, um, it's some somewhere some money is needed, and um, yeah, like that. I think like needs to be some check marks: Are we ready? Can we do it? Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a lot of things need to happen over time. Um, like having the right people in place, the right people with right experience and so on, to then be able to do it the right way. Because you can scale also the wrong way and you can right. make a lot of mistakes. And certainly we all do make a lot of mistakes. I certainly did. Uh, but, um, yeah, you learn, you learn from that and that's why it's extremely valuable then to have the right people in place that maybe have done it before and um, might not repeat the same mistakes. Maybe
2: adding to this one, I think from a more bootstrapped or general entrepreneurial perspective. So I think the question is, what what does scale mean to you? right? Mm. So is scaling just the fact that you have money and you can burn it, um, which is fun for the time that you have it, but not fun afterwards? Um, Or do you want to achieve a certain outcome impact with it. And I think generally speaking, in an entrepreneurial life, I mean, product market fit is one of the focal points, but you obviously need a scaled organization to come to this point. Mm -hmm. It's way smaller, um, and maybe it's only the founding team, um, but in the end you need engineering capacity or whatever you're building, um, being at a clothing line or whatsoever, you need the people who are capable of achieving that point to actually selling the first product, services, whatever it is. And I think then the question is, what's the business, what is the environment that you're in and whom do you compete against? Because that determines if you know, we see bootstrapped, whatever path you're taking makes sense. Um, and then you try to figure out what's the next step. And I think I would always, in, in any entrepreneurial case, try to reflect, to think in phases of what you want to achieve next and ideally have one to two year frame. Um, and really build towards that. Start small and then you can sequentially build up. And I think this is a way how you can still at some point make the decision of going left or right. So, you know, some businesses had initial business angel funding, um, then scaled profitably like, I don't know, a Mailchimp to a 7 billion exit. Um, Versus other cases just needed three, four hundred, whatever million um, to actually come to a point or to fail, right? So that's an option always. Do you have a so good
0: example for a goal or a milestone that you want to hit in these one to two years?
2: So I think for the for the first phase, and if I may correct me about this, I think I would definitely say product market fit. So first revenue, customers, traction. Mm-hmm. Doesn't always need to be revenue, but I think that's the best indicator. Um, and then I think it's about the scale of the unit economics. So I think that's the second phase of how can you achieve a 10x with what you're doing and what are the drivers? Can you influence the drivers with money? Think about VC. Right. Um, is it a matter of organic growth education of the market? Might not be the best case. Or is it even a more organically driven case because you have, I don't know, built open source software and you're selling a subscription on top of that or mm-hmm. whatever. Where Why at all think about you know, getting money, um, execute well, and you'll have a nice life afterwards. Yeah.
0: Matis, was there a certain
1: revenue threshold that you focused on before you went into scaling mode? Well, I remember at small PDF, it was mostly to like just pay our salaries. Uh, that was the first threshold yeah. because we were, had nothing, and really just the founders, uh, our three co-founders, uh, we needed to somehow pay the bills, and that's basically the first threshold. Mm-hmm. And then. Well, you have enough money to hire the first person, right? Very exciting. Um, and then that's your first step in scaling, like hire that first person. And then, of course, there's a lot more, right? But um, I think the thresholds were always for, for small PDF more like the sustainable, like can we grow this further? Do we see that, right? Do we have the profitability to grow further? And does it make sense to grow further or in terms of the company, right? Does it make sense to invest more? How much will additional an additional employee basically bring in? Um, six is a bit different. It's it's basically I mean we you know we we basically had a pitch deck and went to VCs and got already two million uh, million euros. Uh, that was back then actually a big uh, big seed round. Now it's nothing, but uh, <laughs> now that back then it was a lot, and that was very different then, right? So we already had the money, and then like you start basically scaling on the basis of that even though you might not even have the traction or the proof that it's going to work and you're just going to basically go for it and hope for the best. And that might then become very tricky when you don't deliver on your initial expectations. Right.
0: Today I want to focus on three different areas of scaling up a company. First one is hiring and culture, then fundraising, and of course also user or customer growth and acquisition. Let's start with hiring and culture first, Dennis. You helped uh, grow small PDF and hire more and more employees. How do you actually take proactively care and shape the culture of a company when you hire more employees? (laughs) I think it's a very big question
2: um, that is not easy to answer in two minutes. I think generally speaking, in, in the case of small PDF, I joined three and a half years ago. So there was an identity. Um, And obviously, I think about 12, 13 people at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to maintain what you have, but at the same time, make sure that you can set on top of that. So, usually what you look at is what are the tools and processes that you need to scale that organization to the next level, sequence, whatever you define, right? And I think what you're doing there usually is to say, what are the business opportunities that that you have? um, And how can you frame that into teams that in the end have their own goals to achieve what you want to achieve on the top level? Um, And I think in the case of Small PDF, I think the first step, if I remember correctly, was about 25, 30 people um, that we made in terms of leap to essentially at the point where I joined three and a half years ago, we had 13, 14 million monthly active users, so already huge base on this, this round, but I think only 20,000 paying plus minus, if I remember correctly. So essentially, bridge that gap between you know free users that we pay for versus users that pay for the free users, um, and just squeeze conversion, make sure that we have proper pricing, and um, limit the users the right way. So. That worked, so we took it to the next level and thought about, okay, what, what's needed next and what is the need from a customer perspective um, and figured out, okay, let's, let's move to becoming a platform because the biggest challenge that we had as an organization was essentially to, to keep customers, mm-hmm. to bound them to our platform and to build recurring use cases. So, that started Belgrade, built desktop team, built mobile team, um, started to build extensions, and with that engagement on different platforms, covering more use cases. And I think this is how, generally speaking, I would describe it without losing identity, which is always the hard thing that you need to navigate. Right? Because uh, I think now, looking three and a half years back to now, um, the company has changed. And I think that's clear. The ambition level changed, um, The uh, I would say the level of expertise that you need to execute change because the complexity of the company grew. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are two ways how to bridge that. One is you enable people to grow with the organization, which needs a lot of care and a lot of enablement and training and coaching. Um, and two, you hire experienced people that actually have gun through that and help you. And ideally do a mix of both and try to balance yourself uh, moving forward because you obviously don't want to you know, lose people that you had from the start. But at the same time, being at, at least hyper growth, they will not scale quick enough and learn quick enough to cover up to, I don't know, um, what would be a good example, make a 200 million financing round um, at a, a Series E where the only experience is graduated of an MBA uh, at, I don't know, uh, University of St. Right? So right. I think this is a bit the, the, the gap that you need to bridge.
0: Mm-hmm. Mathis, I wonder, when you do initially scale up you know, from these zero to 50 employees, what role do core values or also all these systems like o k r s and strategic objectives et cetera, play? Did you
1: already pay attention to these things early on yeah. uh yeah, maybe yeah, absolutely I mean, so I think there there's some things that really matter from the start, and then there are some things that only matter later or become important later, right some processes I think you can definitely over engineer things in the beginning. With 10 people, anything works. You basically don't need a right. meeting, you don't need a calendar, you don't need anything, you're just in a room and you're working, you know, building cool stuff. Right. With 20, 30 people, this breaks entirely. Uh, so you need to have some processes, right? You want some OKRs, you want something just to have people aligned and like all working in one direction. I think, in terms of like, right, like not to break too much, especially in terms of culture. And I loved how Dennis answered this uh, because I think it's so, it speaks so much for itself, like how that company operates because it's so, what makes sense for the business? You know, what do we do and, and uh, can we afford it? Yes, it works. Okay, let's do more, right? While in a VC funded business, sometimes that's not the case. It's just like, well, sounds great in a pitch. We have a fantastic idea. Let's hire a lot of people and try it, right? Um, which, which might make sense sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. And, um, but what I really love, I think also, in terms of culture, your first point, right, like how do you, how do you scale culture? It's something extremely difficult that really often breaks in the hypergrowth case, right? We, we hired like 300 people in 12 months. That's, that's insane. And basically we had, what, like 150 people before. So all of a sudden, basically, the majority of the company was new. They basically just started, and they all didn't know each other, right? they didn't know who is who they didn't know what is the culture it brought in a lot of cool new energy but at the same time like what was the core the foundation that we built that growth upon right and what i always feel like still today walking into the small pdf office even though i think the company changed so much as you say rightfully so there is like a core of that was you know a foundation that we always was built upon it was so clear that, like, this is some core values—very product-driven, very like, no bullshit, no no senseless. We just do some some stuff and, and see what works. But really, like, you know, building a, a great business by solving you know real customer problems—that is such a core thing. And you walking in there with such good people, with such great people, like around, and actually in Belgrade, they somehow replicated this, uh, and uh, I'm still really surprised that this was possible. But um yeah in 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 a in a really really nice way. And it was due of course that it was not as crazy, maybe not as fast, um as we did at Textfix. And I realised that, you know, we had a lot of things, a lot of processes of like, okay, how do we do cultural interviews? Right? We have cultural questions that are based on the cultural values that are you know, all of that. It works and it helps a lot. But you're still breaking things in hypergrowth. And And that's, you know, it's an exciting ride, but it's also a challenge then when you go through that as a company, as someone who loves to work at a place and then all of a sudden that place changed so much, so drastically fast, right, that basically you weren't even able to adapt to that whatever new thing comes out. And that's why I think like there's also the beauty maybe of a bootstrap company, and especially when you do it right, like I think Dennis did, um, building on that foundation in 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 a way that like, you know, increasing um, ha, like raising the bar constantly, but while like keeping a, a really good core and scaling that culture, um, which is so precious.
2: Yeah, I think one maybe maybe adding to this, so what, I think one funny story that we had like two or three years ago, which well, remember the text fix thingy exploding uh, in terms of size, not as a company, um, was I think the the question of what is healthy scale, right, and which ties a bit to the question right. that we have as well. And mm-hmm. um, I think what we tried to figure out jointly with the expertise, I mean, from or ex, yeah, experience at TaxFix is, okay, what's the ratio that an organization is actually capable of holding structurally and culturally without breaking? And, I mean, th- there is no number, I think, that you could put on a table which works for AOB, I think, but what we came up with, 50% of people per year, you can actually digest as an organization, right, which breaks down to like 45 to 5% per month and then you spread it over time. So you actually have, usually what you would say is that a person can define with the culture of a company in about three to six months, rather six. Um, so these are your educators and promoters mm-hmm. and you only want to get as much people in to actually break the educators from promoters and to create something new because otherwise you need other processes which might hinder the speed of an organisation. So I think this is a bit the framework which we try to apply yeah. at Small SmallPDF, um, like the 50% per year and then gradually scale and I think obviously you have more and more promoters at the beginning that then can teach the new peeps. So you can allow more new peeps to come, um, while keeping a balance between new culture and old culture.
0: They there will always be changed. Um, I think that's a very great and valuable key takeaway to sort of also apply to your own business. Mathis, when you were scaling up both companies, what were some key roles that you hired early on to help you manage that growth? Did you have any specific roles or key people in mind that you said, we absolutely need to hire for this role?
1: again i think it, it depends so much on the case right but sure. for us it, it it was different i mean like again we only scaled once we had dennis in the boat right like and he he brought in like he first increased really the business and then he did the scaling so i think you know th- that was the absolute key for sure but um i think in tax i think what is interesting and what is also very different in europe than in the us is like when do you bring in what people right in in the us you bring in maybe like the fifth, sixth hire is like a PR person, which is very different, which is like the 28th hire in, in Europe. And then there is um, the, the first recruiter you bring in, right? Like in the US, it's usually really number three, number four, I think, on average, mm-hmm. while in, 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 in Germany, at least, it's number 20. Um, so when do you have what person, right, for what? And um, I do think it's it's really interesting depending on like what you look for, right? Like you wanna scale or you wanna hire fast. And then it's so easy, especially when it's your first time going through that, right? like who do you hire? What do you even need, yeah. right? Like you need a chief revenue officer or, 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 or you need something totally different, you need a head of sales, what do you need? Uh, and it's so hard to figure that out. And I think one of the biggest learnings for me is really like you know to talk to a lot of people, other companies that maybe have done it before or also talking to a head of sales, you know that is really great, and then learning, okay, that that that's maybe what a great head of sales, um, you know, could be like, and then and then really like defining that, making that extremely clear, and then having a very structured process of finding that out, without making compromises. And I think that's just the classic that everyone tells you, but it's so hard when you scale fast like to sometimes say no to a person because it's only 80% sure and you think maybe, maybe it's good enough and yeah, I really need that person and then maybe you make that decision and in the end 99%, I believe at least in my experience, I was always wrong and I shouldn't have hired that person. It wasn't a fit and it was my mistake, my responsibility that you know I made the wrong decision. And and then, of course, in the end, that has such a big uh, impact then for many months, not just like for a few months, but you hire that person, the person starts until you actually really know that that person doesn't work out. Often takes six months, you you start a new process, it takes another six months to hire and have someone there and basically you lose a year in in a department. And I had a few departments where it's like, okay, just one department, nothing happened for 12, 18 months. Except that we hired some people that were also not right, and that in the end we basically had to let go um, or, or or find different different roles. So it's really like a bit hell yes or hell no in that regard to the key hires. Absolutely yes, uh, and I think it, and this is is hard. Like it sounds so easy um, to even know what is a hell yes, right? <laughs> what is that? Uh, right. And uh, and what is a hell no? That's hard to find that out. But then also to be in that situation and make the right call. Um, it's a tough, tough yeah. time. You probably yeah. need experience, but also the exchange with other entrepreneurs, what you mentioned before, can help you with that. Absolutely. This helped me a lot, like just to, to see that, or also my investors that would say, okay, look, you want to hire a CFO, talk to like, our f- five best CFOs and just get a vibe, get a feel of what that looks like. Right. And uh, that was so helpful for me because I had an entirely wrong idea of what a CFO even does, yeah. <laughs> and especially not, not knowing what we really need. Of course. Right?
0: Then is you also hire internationally obviously we 're here in Bel- Belgrade today, so why was that the right strategy for you to really you know, build a local team here not only for the nearshoring but actually building a local office, a local culture, and really having a significant portion of your team here in belgrade
2: i mean we are we 're still in the process right so this this is not finished. I think generally speaking to to the intro that I made, I think the biggest challenge and we 're trying as well to work on internally is. Um, getting people who want to own their shit and the outcome of what they're doing, um, which is very different to what we find in the industry. Right? So if you work for Interventure or Holycode, or you can name, I think, twenty other more companies, um, then you essentially are the executor. Um, versus, I think, in our case, we expect you to tell us what you do to make a change. Mm-hmm. So. In the case of the mobile team that sits in in Belgrade for us, it's they need to build the roadmap. They need to know what has impact. They need to defend what has impact. And if they fail, they fail, right? Um, So we can coach them as a leadership team, obviously, into the right direction. We have hypotheses, but it should be bottom-up build. Um, And I think this is a mentality and an experience that um, you can only create in an ecosystem which is a bit more mature. Um, and I think this is what we're trying to do at the moment. Um, you know, I think educate, bring a lot of expertise in, mix the teams up um, and really help that, you know, come to the next level. I think generally speaking, you know, culture, you touched on this, is obviously one of the core reasons, I mean, why people should join not only small PDF but other, any other company. Um, and the belief in creating something that is meaningful for them. Um, I'm not a big... You know, believer of tying professional life and personal life together. So, whenever someone says, I cannot learn, learn more in small PDF or whatever, and I have an opportunity to actually make the next step as a person, I think we are the, the first ones to say, That's amazing. Um, if you have that feeling, make that step. Um, but obviously, try to support at maximum the journey that we can support as an organization, right? So if there's no team lead position open, um, but someone wants to move in that direction, then I think it's just fine to, you know, find for yourself the right solution. And I think this is a cultural reflection that we try to bring to the table.
0: Yeah, but you really want to make people part of the organization, part of the culture, so that's also why invest in events and bring everybody together instead of just a transactional relationship. Exactly. Montes,
1: you wanted to add something? Yeah, no, exactly. I remember actually the moment when Dennis called me up and said, like, look, I have this idea of Belgrade and stuff, and uh, I think I was quite sceptical, like, yeah, okay, that is, I don't know, I've never been to Belgrade, like, uh, I, I don't know. And um, uh, and I thought, like, okay, if everyone in Zurich, you know, is, is it too early to do that, or is it the right point of time, and, and especially how are you going to do it? I remember, like, also how you then, like, pitched it to me, basically that, well, yes, there are basically a lot of companies that there's great talent, basically. and. There is also some competition. There's some other companies, also a lot of Swiss companies, funnily enough, uh, that, that basically have like outsourced operations. But that you said, like, you want to do it differently than them and really have like a fully fledged team, not just like you know, outsource development of like please do this and this and that, but like have the designer here, have the PM here, and have everyone feel like I'm making you know part of the decisions in a team. And you said like that's how we're going to win some talent, not just because we pay more or something, but like also people that really want this. And I feel like I, I, I learned so much, like how Dennis did this. So we, we, we applied a lot of learnings uh, at TechSix when we opened our Madrid office um, to try to do it pretty much exactly like that, yeah. because I think it worked very well.
0: well. What's the key part here to make that successful? Do you need to have a great local office manager to also really reinforce the culture and everything? Or what is like one of the key ingredients to make that work? I think it's... I mean,
2: honestly speaking, if you look at the last two and a half years, location has become less important, right? So, um, in the end, um, it's about the purpose and the scope of work that you provide, Mm -hmm. um, and then the talent that you get together and that creates stuff, right? And I think this needs to match. So, um, for us, I think what second learning um, reflecting to this is Remote work is amazing because it's very efficient, but it doesn't build any culture, right? So, it's very transactional. um, And we need to find the fine line between being on-site in a team, having to chat chat, at coffee, being able to solve, do creative work on-site, but do the delivery work ideally, which is the majority of of the work, um, in an environment where people just feel comfortable, right? Being at home in Montenegro, Greece, I don't care. Right? Yeah, right. And I think this is a balance that we try to strike, right, with offices in Barcelona, Zurich and, and Belgrade and still having a local focus and obviously I mean trying to do local employer branding, um, local sourcing, um, but at the same time having the ability, I mean, for people to, you know, work in part from where they want um, right. and do more creative work on site.
0: Yeah, great. Let's also talk about fundraising. Mathis, you've seen both the bootstrap case and the VC-backed case. When does it actually make sense to go down the venture capital route, route or when does it not?
1: Right. I think it's funny, like because you know, often when I talk to founders or, or people that's thinking about starting a business, um, they often think only of that VC path, uh, especially in, in Berlin. And um, yeah, often they're just so focus on, like, I need to start a business, I need to raise a lot of money, and I need to be in the press and, like, you know, impress all people by raising a lot of money. Because that's basically the the validation and feedback loop that you have as as a founder, maybe the only one, right, Mm -hmm. external one, Um, or at least to a degree and um yeah like i think that's that's so beautiful about you know small pdf to to actually show that case you don't need that and you can actually really grow a company to very significant levels without taking venture capital nonetheless i'm not saying venture capital is a uh, wrong choice i think it can be the absolute right choice and i think that brings um, me to the question when is it when is it the right choice and i think there there are problems that are you know too big or too complicated to basically make money from right away. Um, if you want to, yeah, like invent a new cancer drug, uh, it's an extreme example, but like that costs just so much money. You're not going to make any money before you have that drug, so you need to have, you know, the funding to basically do that. And but there's also a lot of software things, and they're just so complex and so big, really, really big problems that just make sense to basically have VC funding from the start. However. And, you know, there are other cases where you could actually think it in a different way where you, well, you want to build a, let's say, accounting software for freelancers or whatever. Um, sure, you can do that, right? You could, you could like, build a, the perfect product and take two years and basically have 20 developers working on it. Or you basically say, I, I solved just one very small problem in this, maybe a converter from, like, you know, excel to like another accounting software to just like learn and understand and maybe make some money with that that's a very different business to start Mm. with but that could make money right away right for that you don't need to raise any money so i think like there can be a different approach and that i think is small pdf is that beautiful example of like you know we started with something extremely small a very very small problem that we solved for a lot of people and on the foundation of that we could actually build a big business um and, and, and a big product, right, and solve many, many problems. But yeah, it was on the foundation of that. Then, of course, there's the other case where you basically have something and it's working, and you basically just need money to be faster and grow, right? And sometimes that makes sense to basically beat competition. You know, like there's a lot of competition, and you maybe can just outspend everyone. Um, so that that can make a lot of sense. You just grow faster, and it's a winner takes all market. Then probably funding might be the right way to go. And especially if you really have, you know, kind of health unit economics in the sense of you spend one euro there, you get two euros out of it. That is probably just a very easy case. And if the payback period is not immediate, then you can not finance it yourself. You need to somehow finance that. Right. And then VC money, I think, can make a lot of sense. Was that Maybe. the case for tax fix that the unit <coughs> economics game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, I think in the beginning, we, we actually financed the f- first six months ourselves, basically mm-hmm. with all the money we had from small PDFs. So we really took everything and put it in that new company, and we had nothing left on our accounts. Uh, pretty scary, but uh, um, now in hindsight, the right decision. Going really for it, and then we realized it's just, it's a, quite a big problem. We, we just learned on the way, we underestimated uh, just how much work it's going to be to build um, a tech software. Not so easy. And yeah, we just realized like, well, we can do it, but it will just take longer if we don't take any money. And we also realized the market opportunity is quite big. And if we want to win it, we might need to spend a lot of money on marketing. And then eventually, absolutely, yes. In the scaling phase, we raised a lot of money then uh, over time because we just saw so clearly the market is enormous, international, so much opportunity. We basically just need that money to grow, to capture market share and win the market because Um, If once we are there, probably no one or it's going to be very, very hard to challenge us. Yeah, Yeah, I
2: think that maybe to put my
1: Greenhorn
2: um, negative experience as well on the table and reflect a bit more to what Mate said. So I think generally speaking, reflect on the problem that you're trying to solve and how a VC can help you. And Mm -hmm. I think they can only help you with money. Um, point. I will tell you a bit why I think that, and what my personal learning is a bit in in that direction. I think this is this is what you have to have in mind, and what I, I think want to specifically point out that it, you know this fairy tale case of oh I'm a founder I raised one and a half million, two million, or ten million or whatsoever um, is it's it's not relevant, right? So in the end, it's relevant that you build something that lasts, that is successful being at an exit, being at a profitable company, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, Raising money doesn't mean anything, and raising money for a high valuation doesn't mean anything either, right? Because if you look at the terms of all these, most of the billion dollar rounds, um, they're not really favourable for the people actually that founded the company because if a company is sold, usually the first money goes to investor, not to the founder. So, um, you know, and this is the way how you can obviously tweak up valuations to the top. But a uh, side story: if you want a deep dive? Happy to do it. Um, maybe to the fairy tale story from from my side. So I I founded Knip as my my second venture, and we've been on the VC train. Um, with Knip. Knip was a mobile insurance broker. I think was the first mobile insurance broker in DACH, um, and we actually scaled the company to about 100 people, uh, raised the Series A for 13 million, and then had the question of, okay, what's, what's our next sequence and what do we want to achieve in, in, in two years? And as being a very young founder, I think I've been 26 at this point, um, the, the ambition was let's go U.S. That's we are going to crack the American <laughs> market, um, and to do that, you need American investors, right? Because that's the only way how you can get the knowledge. So traveled over to Boston, San Francisco, raised the Series B. Uh, I think at this point, fifteen, sixteen million um, for the company. Moved ten people over to New York and started to build up the business. And funnily enough, um, our hypothesis in the U.S. market was we can build the same thing, right? So we can. I mean, ask for the insurances from the people. We get it from the insurance carriers and we make money on top of that. Um, and all the investors, we got two lead investors for this round, were like, yeah, 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 yeah this works. Just come over. We'll, we'll make that work. It's a super idea. You will crush your billion dollar. You can buy your own island afterwards. Um, and they obviously more. They can build two islands or, or buy two islands. Um, and uh, what we figured out after three months is that this whole thing doesn't work in the US. Right. We spent like a million in the market. We wasted, I think at this point, 16 million, million valuation. Um, so the whole promise of the next round, and we have been not profitable at this point, was, okay, we go to 100, 120 million valuation with proving that this American market actually works. But after three to six months, we sat there and like, okay, so let's reflect on how realistic is it actually to make this business grow here and our... I mean, hypothesis was around one to five percent. Wow. So, how much do you invest there? Um, and what essentially happened is that we cut down the U.S. operations, um, and from you know not walking on the ground anymore, but flying over it, because we've been so confident with the money that we had. Um, all of a sudden, we've been so small um, because just things didn't work out. Um, at the same time, you had investors on board that, you know. Uh, lift off the promise of we'll make this back, we go to 100 million valuation um, but nobody was willing to pay that valuation so of course and obviously nobody was willing to because the promise was not was not kept and the numbers didn't look like that so um i mean this i think it's just a reflection of how we case can turn out when you think that we see no more than you <laughs> Right? They will provide money. They will buy into a hypothesis, but it's you who needs to execute and it's you who, who needs to prove. Um, and there is just a big bet that you need to take and that you need to personally reflect on. And I think, right. in this case, I mean, at least now after five, six years of reflecting, I'm totally fine with that. Right. So was a bet. We failed and we moved on. And in the end, the company still is successful, but with a different business model. Um, but. Looking at our competitors at this point, who have just been slower and not taking the seawood or a bit of a different approach, Mm. they're unicorns now, right? So it's like, ah, we've been the first, we had a better (laughs) product, um, so shit happens. What would you do differently in hindsight? Just go slower on acquisition, Um, so customer acquisition. I think at this point, you know, the, the whole game was who raises more money and who spends more money on TV ads. Um, and I mean, what followed is that prices obviously increased on the ads acquisition conversion rates actually sunk. Um, CLV sunk because people tried out multiple apps. You needed to increase, you know, couponings or offer couponings, like you know, I don't know, you get fifty euro Amazon vouchers if you sign up. So again, customer acquisition cost increased and yeah. it was just a battle to death. Nobody, yeah. you know, would survive that battle. And I think this is definitely emotion that you don't want to have, right? So, and this is one of the reasons why learnings for small PDF was, don't do discounts, one price, no resellers, focus on the core, it's your customer, no middleman, and just follow that path. Be a bit slower. Um, I mean, we're now in year nine, Um, but in the end, you know, uh,
0: I think it worked out better. Absolutely. And that's actually the perfect segue to the third topic, customer slash user acquisition. Malthus, you have a lot of experience and know-how to share when it comes to growth engines that you can tackle or use for your startup when entering the scaling mode. What are those that you can choose from?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, I I would differentiate between two directions, right? Uh, Organic and um, paid acquisition, basically, Mm -hmm. of of, um, customers. And um, both, I think, can be important and both can make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, at at small PDF, right, I was, uh, I remember like I was still like writing the SEO texts and like, you know, figuring out what SEO even was and Googling and getting an ebook or something to to learn it. Uh, It became our most important um, engine, right, to, to acquire customers because we realized people have this problem, people Google it. If you're right there to help them, then they'll come back and uh, yeah. use us again. And uh, so this was basically the really the, the important point. But also then, you know, our acquisition is not just like acquiring once, but really like also keeping people around, right? And uh, retaining customers um, that often gets forgotten. And that means also re-engagement, um reactivation and so on so i talk a lot about all of these, but um and then the other thing is paid right which is very different for example at, at Taxfix, right we basically started to understand quite early that like how much money we can spend where to acquire more customers and we realized well okay that's working um actually we had a budget for marketing right which is like i don't know 500k or so and we realize, well, we can spend a lot more and still acquire customers profitably and like get more euros out of it than we spend in. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, right? And for that, that's the perfect pitch to investors, right? They Absolutely. love that. That's something they understand. It's very <laughs> clear. More money in, more money out. And um, so, yeah, that's basically then something that you can really scale, right? And so at HexFix, we do a lot of TV, a lot of digital advertising, but also a lot of brand. Um, And maybe that's the last part, maybe the third basically pillar, brand. And I think that's also not to be underestimated. We are living in a digital world where where we think maybe everything needs to be trackable and performance, marketing is the answer to a lot of things where because you really can track it so well, one euro in, two euros out. But there's a lot of things you can track. And these are really hard things, like how do you build trust with your customers? How do you make people even aware of your solution, that it even exists? Maybe they don't even know that they have a problem, right? Maybe we need to educate people that, they, that there is a problem that uh, could be solved. Um, that there is a solution out there that uh, you know, could solve their problem. So there's a lot of things like there, which was extremely important for us scaling um, at fix, where we started to spend a lot of money on performance marketing. But then we realized, hey, if we can also Make sure that people like you know trust us and like see see that we are not just like some tiny small company that basically don't don't know what they're doing and you know don't don't take care of their valuable data and so on. If we can position ourselves as like a trustable brand, people will trust us more. And we saw huge you know um, differences then all of a sudden in conversion rates where people like yeah just converted so much better because they realized like okay maybe I clicked on a Google app but I also saw the TV app before. And that's why maybe I trust that company more than you know if I hadn't seen that. So I think brand is a lot, a lot important underlying. But look, organic is is something amazing. And at Textfix, we have never spent really money on on paid acquisition, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. Like when you can acquire customers uh, in that way, when you can keep them around, have that virality trigger, um, and you don't have to raise money for that. Right, and you right. have to raise a lot of money for the other route. Now, Dennis, I haven't seen any small PDF TV spots yet. Um,
0: Does it it mean that (laughs) if you're bootstrap that you have a stronger focus on the more organic growth channels versus paid channels?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we've basically grown with, right? So organic acquisition, um, and I think there are two things to mention. I think one is... Matt has mentioned that we started with one single use case, I mean the name tells it, right, so it's like compress a document and the size of a document, yeah. but I think then expanded the use cases to, I don't know, convert a PDF to Word, OCR, a document, sign a document, um, merge, split, you name it, right, yeah. so you have basically a whole chain and now putting on top kind of document management solution that ties everything together. So. Organic has always been the number one motion because obviously it pays back immediately and it's the nicest thing that you can grow with. Yeah. At the same time, I think, I mean, what we've not done well and now try to cure a bit and invest in is the whole paid front, right? So there is an opportunity, even in our case, mm-hmm. we just because we've been so busy on the one track and focus is important. Uh, we never tapped into the second one. Now, as we're growing in the second pillar, I mean, as a brand-paid mix um, becomes more important. And um, I don't know if we'll see TV ads at one point. It would be nice. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll definitely try, if we can actually acquire customers profitably you know, in the World Wide Web on solutions that we mm-hmm. offer, being at mobile app, being at the desktop app, or certain use cases. So pushing, but uh, being very early on this front.
0: Great. Now, if we reflect on both your growth journeys, Do you think that there's such a thing as too much growth or too fast growth that you can enter as a startup?
1: Maybe start with you, Mattis. Um, Yeah, definitely. I mean, depends on what measure you measure, right? In terms of growth, no. There's always (laughs) never enough growth, basically. When you ask our investors, no. But um, yeah, of course, there's a lot of things that break, right? A lot of things that go wrong, a lot of stuff that happens that wouldn't need to happen. When you, when you grow extremely fast. And uh, you have to deal with the consequences, and the consequences are very real. Um, if your culture is breaking apart, if people are you know, not knowing each other, if they don't know how to communicate, if people are leaving and uh, that your, your people is, is your business, that, yeah. that is an enormous big problem. It can also be that you basically, like, you know, uh, I think Dennis made a nice example. We also experienced that, like, opening up new markets too quick, and then you get defocused, right? Mm -hmm. And then maybe you lose track of, like, what your major focus actually was, and you could have built an amazing business there, um, and uh, maybe you didn't because, yeah, you were too scattered with your attention. And I also think like, you know, with small PDF, if he had taken too early investment money, I think we would have, this would have could have happened to us as well, where we could have been too distracted and like, yeah, maybe not have that focus on organic acquisition and started paid and, uh, I don't know, built some product, hired uh, 500 people, uh, because we probably could have, right? But would have that been uh, built the right business? Like, probably not, right? And maybe would have actually killed the company by scaling too fast. Right. And I think that's very real. I mean, it's a luxury problem to have at that point, but it's still very real. And I think it's, it's interesting to think about like what is the right pace for us and uh, for, for our company, um, for our business, for our industry and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Dennis, for you, I want to slightly adapt the question because scaling and growing as a company, but also as an individual means more stress, more pressure. How do you stay healthy as a founder to manage all that growth and scaling up with small PDF?
2: That's a good one. So I think the best advice that I got I many years ago from a conversation with another founder was there's, there are three appointments that a founder should have every week. One with your mental coach, <laughs> Yep. Two with your fitness instructor, <laughs> um, and three with your professional coach, right? So yep. another founder, I don't know, organization whatsoever. Yep. I think that's a bit extreme. Um, so you don't need to have that on a on a weekly basis. But I think this ties into the right directions, right? Um, and I think the biggest challenge that I mean maybe is a good reflection to what Matt has said is that how should you be aware of consequences if you don't know them? <laughs> right um and i think the only way to figure that out is exchanging with others getting an outside in view versus you being inside out and you know very much focused on deliver success grow whatever your inspiration is right if your inspiration is i want to buy a porsche because Mm -hmm. um i found a business that's totally fine right um then this is the focus that, that that you have to have but i think generally speaking these three pillars for i think everyone in a leadership team, in a scale-up, being it small or big, um, should be focus. Mental yeah. health, physical health, and a bird's view outside, in view to what you're doing in challenging, you know, or getting a perspective on challenges that you see. And I think that's very valuable if you have. I mean, some on it there. There are even platforms at the moment. I mean, just don't want to advertise but you know you have Sharpist or better up and, and i think there are five or six others that you can actually get this support um you have a local gym um and i'm sure there is somewhat of a community as well that i mean from an entrepreneurial point of view can back if not i think investors might have these connections or whatsoever um so this is kind of the professional backing that you need i mean obviously there is another one which is family Um, Or if you have one, if not, that's easy. Um, But then the social life might suffer a bit. Um, So, yeah, I think you need to tie that together. And I think what is, summing this up to me is define your entrepreneurial identity. Why are you doing what you're doing? Um, What's your goal? Um, And this will change over time, right? So you change as a person and your goal will change as a person. Um, But knowing that and having a reflection on that. Staying healthy, I think, will solve yeah. most yeah. of the problems.
0: And also, if you look a bit into the future, then depending on whether you're VC backed or bootstrapped, you also have certain different outcomes. Because you, Matis, with tax fix, you're VC backed, so the investors also expect a return at a certain point in time. So, is then a trade sale, an exit, or an IPO
1: really the thing that you need to deliver and focus on? I mean, it's not so absolute, but in the end that's kind of what it is about right the investors they have a 10 year 12 year fund uh, length and at some point they need to return their the money to their investors again right. and uh, so some money needs to flow at some point somehow and that's usually uh, yeah the path you go on and i think it's you know there's nothing wrong with that i think that's that's a fantastic outcome for for everyone and including the company and uh, uh, and the investors and and the founders um, but it, um, yeah, like I think with, with VC, I think it's just important to be conscious about and intentional about that path and just knowing where you're going and that it's not the only one. And I think that's often forgotten that you can build a fantastic business that's actually profitable, yeah. as EBTA, you can invest the money again that you're making uh, into growing the business, and you don't necessarily need that exit. And that that's really surprising to me that, like, a lot of people I talk to it is just like a business is this is, you know, what a startup is for yeah. which I just yeah, disagree with. I think you can build different companies and also not every company needs to be, you know, five hundred people. And I think it's it's a beautiful thing to have a twenty people company that is profitable where like people are happy, go to work every day and Maybe they don't grow like crazy, right? And that's, that's beautiful too. And if that's your intention, and I think that's beautiful what, what Dennis said, like you know, your founder identity really asking your why and what you want to do and, and why you want to do it and how should your day look like, right? Maybe in five years, how do you define success? Is that like you know managing 500 people? Is that like you know, only communicating and, and basically yeah, being the manager of that company? Or, or, or maybe not, maybe it's like building stuff and like, you know, still programming or, or, or whatever that is. And that would be a very different company. And I think a lot of people forget that, that to set that intention uh, very clearly, like what entrepreneur do I want to be? What company do I want to build? And what do I need to do in terms of funding or not you know, to actually get there? Because they're a very different path and I think there's nothing wrong with either one of them, but I think intention is, is, is a good thing um, yeah. when, you, when you can take that. Anything you want to add on this, Dennis?
2: I think that uh, summed it up pretty nicely.
0: Perfect. So now we open up for questions. We already have received a few of them. Maybe you can bring up the QR code again, that if you want to add something to the question list, uh, you can add it right there. And I'm just quickly going to head over here to the Mentimeter. So people ask, are there any sources or books that you would recommend to expand on the topic of scaling up a company? Is there anything that helped you or that you would recommend?
2: It's a good one. So, I mean, I think personally, I started out of the university and visited a lot of these, you know, early startup founder gatherings and then went into accelerators as well and tried to build knowledge up there. Um, I think that's definitely one way to go, but it's a slower way to go. Um, I think just doing it, and experiencing on the go is always the best thing. Jump into the cold water and, you know, reach out to VCs or business angels or whatever or customers is right. um, the best way. Plus exchanging with people who have done it, right? So, and I think there, I would not, you know, as a, as a founder who just has an idea, I would not like to speak to Mark Zuckerberg, right? Because sure. <laughs> different scale and I think he has different problems. At the moment mm-hmm. and for the last ten years, but you essentially want to talk to someone who you know have has nailed product market fit in a segment that is adjacent to yours, okay. and you should be able to figure out you know either a connection to this person or mm-hmm. uh, reach out or figure it out from the network to to get the insights. so I think I would point these two out as the main sources yeah
1: yeah yeah, good question I think I mean I think Dennis was spot on. I feel like it's very hard to basically have like some, you know, like general lessons that apply to everyone. Um, Individual cases are so different, businesses are so different, situations are so different. To say this is how you do it is is a really hard thing. I think that's why. What I love to do is also to talk to people right that have done it, uh, to just like hear their experience and then decide myself what is relevant to me. Um, And for books. The same. I, I love to read biographies and I took a lot of like from that if it's like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs but also or people like you know um, Walt Disney I loved like that uh, for example a lot. It's, it's a beautiful biography where you can take so much on not just like how to build a business but you know how to do image engineering and to be very creative and like and all the struggles that um, Walt uh, went through. And And that's why I think like it's more inspirational. I think especially as a founder type, you don't want to execute a textbook thing. You want to do mm-hmm. your own thing. Right. And that's I think also like how you should get the advice that uh, you know, like really helps you, that inspires you and, and brings you forward. Yeah. So I think learn from other people is, is yeah. probably the best. That's the key takeaway. Dennis,
0: the next question is for you. How would you describe the small PDF culture in a few words? People are really interested to know more about what you just talked about.
2: So I think the the identity that we're trying to build is bottom-up, autonomous, but accountable. Mm-hmm. And I think that describes you know from how the teams are organized, how people actually operate. Um, so. We have only two people in the C-level with 150 employees at the moment, which means that we don't want to micromanage. We cannot micromanage. I hate micromanaging. Um, But this means that people actually need to be able to drive the topics, the initiatives that they have, the topics. And as well, from a tactical point of view, um, you know, I think there are different stages of of framings. And I think in our case, a small PDF is very important that the teams can build their own tactics of achieving things needs to come from the bottom up. Yeah. Um, but this requires a certain level of skill and experience in the teams. So you obviously are very limited on, you know, the people that you can hire or
1: the time that you need to train people on on that road. Mm-hmm. Maybe to add sure. to that, I think what is what is also interesting and maybe uh, like for me at least when I come to the office, you know, that, that I also always experience, I think just uh, besides what you said, also just the quality of people and the friendliness and, the, and just like that really good people. I don't know, whenever I meet people from small I was like, wow, I wish I had more time so I could go lunch with everyone and <laughs> I get a lot of lunch invitations that I would love to go, but sometimes can't. Um, but like just that really that, that friendliness, that openness, that... It's something really special that um, definitely we don't see often in, in a lot of companies in Berlin or so with, uh, where you just don't have that at all. And you just like that no-asshole policy, I think, that is somehow implemented uh, <laughs> really works, right? Uh, There's
0: a follow-up question tied to that from uh, Dragana. Um, the question is how do you move away from people sort of having the spirit of I need to call this person just to be on the safe side to probably like of more of a corporate environment? How do you really hand over the responsibility and the skill set to make the decision and call the shots, but also take full responsibility to the team?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question is very much a digital transformation question, While uh, like being in an environment which doesn't serve that, and then the question of how to turn it around. I think ideally you build it up from scratch, then you don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing there is praise, failures and allow them to happen, but enforce learning from it, right? So nobody, I mean, I think in our case or in a small PDF case, and I would assume in a text-based case as well, has issues when teams don't hit their goals. But be transparent about it, communicate that you don't hit them, and at the point where you communicate it, reflect on why that's the case and how you want to improve it the next time. Mm-hmm. And then we have everything that we need. Right? So, yeah. just let's reiterate, there might be outside influence, which you couldn't control, sure. there might be inside influence, which you can control and you need to adapt. Okay. Um, and I think just embracing that, right? So, okay. everybody fails, but focus on an ambitious impact that you want to generate and being fine with not achieving it but learning from that. and be quick on yep. the iterations.
0: Love that. The next question is for you, Mattis. Um, here people ask, how do you go about hiring a CEO for your startup when it's time <laughs> for you to
1: move on? I think you're the pers- perfect <laughs> person to answer that question. <laughs> yes, I have done it twice. Um, yeah, also at, also at uh, TechFix. basically, I'm, uh, I transitioned to a chairman role last year in October, um, and we hired a, a CEO. Um, yeah, it's hard. I mean, like, it's it, what I think is the foundation that is really, really important, more important than anything, is the cultural match. Um, because if you if you just bring someone in that uh, you know just is, is not that match, that person will just break everything, right? And if and he or she can cannot be successful in, in, in that scenario, it will just um, yeah, it, it will be too much turmoil. I think in you mm-hmm. if you have something good, then the foundation, that must be the foundation you build upon. And um, I think in both scenarios, this was my absolute focus in talking and understanding. With Dennis, there was actually a really, really early match. Um, I was actually surprised how fast that went because I imagined it um, will take a very, very long time to find someone. But sometimes you get lucky. Um, and we did. So, And I think that that's, that's the foundation. And then, of course, it's all like, you know, what do you need to achieve in 12 months, 24 months? What, what does that person what What are the skills required to basically bring us there? What are our um, strengths and challenges and um, what, what basically values or what what uh, capabilities we want in that person? and to be quite strategic, very clear, and very structured in that process of finding that out, making absolutely sure that is the case, doing as many reference calls as you can and um, yeah, then basically just going to it and also be helpful you know, and uh, wh- where you can, and also stay out of where you don't belong. Um, another important lesson. Uh, <laughs>
0: another question that we got maybe to both of you, let's start with you, Dennis, is should you outsource anything like lead generation or user slash customer acquisition, or should you always keep that in-house when you're scaling up?
2: I think the the answer as with everything is <laughs> it depends, um, but I would I would have a clear tendency. Um, in most of the cases, um, at least looking at startup scallops, right, not at big corporates, um, attracting customers is your core. Mm-hmm. Talking to customers is your core um, because you need to adapt the product to the needs of them. So, I generally would hardly advise against doing that. Um, because. You will lose touch points with the most important people that you have, which are your potential customers. Um, there might be cases where you know you don't have marketing skills and you need an agency to actually optimize your right. um, your campaigns, uh, which I think is fine as long as the knowledge or the ownership of the campaign sits in house. No. Um, right, so there, there are certain special cases or expert cases where it might make
0: sense, but I would generally advise against. Yeah, it's a bit like the product, right? Because that's also one of your core capabilities. You absolutely want to have that in-house.
2: Exactly. So, I mean, uh, I think we've seen this like five or ten years ago where some of the startups that were VC funded, you know, had outsourced uh, engineering teams or outsourced product teams or whatsoever. I'm not so sure if you would get any support from this side anymore because this is, it's really core and I think the understanding moves more and more into the direction of the research is an integral part you know, of understanding of what the right. job is that the customer I mean, wants to do and how you build the product on top of that. So the closer you can be, the better.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think Dennis was spot on. I think if it's if it's core right to your product and your company and your existence, you can't really outsource, especially not in the beginning. I think once you really know what you're doing, you have to playbook. It's like, well, I need to optimize one channel here a bit more. We have done it. We did it pretty well. I think we can save some costs by outsourcing it. Totally makes sense. Right? Um, maybe get a new pair of eyes. But. To figure it out, and that's what I hear also from other founders, like, oh, we don't know if paid marketing is going to work. Let's just, you know, hire an agency and like make them figure it out. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. They're never going to understand your customer, never understand your business as well as you do, and they will fail very, very likely. Uh, it's going to be extremely surprising if they if they would do anything. And if they would, I would immediately insource them, right? Like, Absolutely. Because then then it's core is at least to 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 figure that out, but. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an important point. However, there are things things that are not core to your business, right? Like if you can outsource some parts of accounting or some tax things or, or sure. law or whatever, like outsource that as long as you can until it makes sense to insource because of cost reasons. Great, um, because it's not core to your business.
0: Now we're almost at the end. Before we wrap up the conversation, I have some rapid fire questions for you because I'm really curious to hear your choices. Ketchup on pizza. Exactly. (laughs) I give you different choices to choose from, and you have to make one choice in just like one sentence. I ask each of you, okay? You ready? All right. Dennis, let's start first. Bootstrapped or VC money? Bootstrapped. Multi, early stage or scale up company?
1: Early stage, more fun.
0: Dennis, product or sales? Product. Matthias, IPO or trade sale? IPO, if you can. Dennis, US or European investors? European. <laughs> and the last one for you, Matisse. Zurich, Berlin or Belgrade? <laughs> <laughs> all of them. Of course. Uh, typical Swiss diplomatic answer. <laughs> That's a wrap. Um, Thank yeah. you so much for joining us here uh, tonight. Matisse, Dennis, uh, thank you so much for all your insights and lessons shared. You're going to be around here for everybody who's here in the location, Belgrade. Well, there will be drinks and some snacks served until 10 p.m., so make sure that you network and have some fun tonight. And also, if anybody's interested to learn more about the career opportunities, make sure to check out the small PDF career page. Thank you all so much, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.